For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, meet the director of a documentary that explores sexual assault on U.S. college campuses. Visit with members of Tucson High's Class of 1945 at their 70th school reunion. And MacArthur Fellow Gary Paul Nabhan speaks about the link between biodiversity and cultural diversity. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Estimates suggest that as many as one in five women attending college become victims of sexual assault. Few of these crimes are reported, investigated, or prosecuted. The reasons are at the heart of the documentary film The Hunting Ground, directed and co-produced by native Tucsonan Kirby Dick. In 2013, he was nominated for an Oscar for directing The Invisible War, a film that examined sexual abuse in the U.S. military. Kirby Dick says that what he and co-producer Amy Ziering heard from audiences at screenings of The Invisible War led them to make The Hunting Ground. The film was released theatrically, and in the Q&As that followed, the questions would very quickly change from being about rape in the military to about rape on college campuses. And uh, we were aware that this was an issue, but we weren't aware how urgent the issue seemed to be on college campuses. And then we we came back and we started getting letters and emails from uh, people, often survivors of sexual assault in, uh, in college, imploring us to make a film about this subject. And, you know, after a few months of this, we just decided we have to make this film. So we set aside the other film w- which we were making, which had nothing to do with sexual assault and, and dove into making this film. And that was the, uh, in the beginning of 2013. What was one of the first challenges you had to overcome in documenting this story? This is not an issue on just one, two, or three college campuses. This is an issue on thousands of college campuses around the country. So we wanted to convey that in the film. We didn't want people walking away thinking if we focused on four or five colleges and universities that those were the rape colleges. Not, No, that's not the case at all. So we actually were following dozens of cases at colleges around the country. And, and just to sort of, you know, undertake that kind of, extensive, broad-based investigative research, investigative reporting program, that was just a great deal of work. Um, I think the other thing is is that, well, you know, this is uh, all too common, and it was not hard for us to find survivors of sexual assault in college. It was much more difficult to get them to actually be a part of the film, because what has happened to so many of these people is when they found the courage to report to their school that they were assaulted, their school in so many cases either victim blamed them, didn't believe them, discouraged them from reporting, discouraged them from going to the police, did everything but really support them in the way that they should have been supported. So their first time about you know speaking about this uh, and reporting it was such a negative experience that they were very fearful of talking about it on camera to the entire country. 
Two of the main stories that you tell are of Andrea, a student from Miami, and Annie from Raleigh, North Carolina, who meet each other online and start lending support and eventually expand that to legal action and to supporting some of their fellow students. Tell us how Andrea and Annie um, became central to this film. They were two students who were assaulted while they were going to school at the uh, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And uh, in both cases, you know, they, the schools had not really responded to them properly. Um, I mean, it's sometimes, you know, it was, again, it was very shocking the way they responded. So they, um, you know, became friends and started to do things to really try to change things at their school. And one of the things they came across was this concept of filing a Title IX complaint against the school. I mean, this had been done before, but rarely, very rarely by students, particularly by students who had, who were working on their own and without, a, uh, without a, an attorney. That became very public. And then after that, when they started getting uh, responses from students around the country for that, they started helping other students who'd been sexually assaulted in their schools and handled their cases properly. They started helping those students file those Title IX complaints. And we knew that would be a very interesting story to follow them as they went sort of from school to school and helped other students. We did not think they would become as successful as they became. I mean, I think they've assisted now in 25 schools, uh, it's 25 uh, students at 25 schools. Uh, they've assisted those students in filing complaints. They are, you know, they're work, working with the White House, with the Senate on legislation. And, and so it's, it's really been quite a story. I mean, the, a big part of the story in the film really is the rise of student activism around this issue. And, and we were able to film that in real time as it was happening. In fact, I don't think we would be here today uh, speaking about this issue if it weren't for the activism of Annie and Andrea and other students like them. The impression that one gets from watching your film is that the numbers surrounding this issue just aren't accurate, that there are too many gray areas and too many things that are being unreported and unrecorded for us to really get a clear picture. Right. Well, schools are required by federal law to report any report of sexual assault on their campus to, you know, to list how many of those reports happen every year. Unfortunately, schools have... Um, over and over, you know, done everything they can to suppress those numbers. If they can convince somebody coming forward who said, I'm assaulted, they convince them to withdraw that report or not formally report it, then they don't have to count it. Something like 40% of schools in, in a year, in one of the past few years, didn't report any sexual assaults at all. And we know that that's, you know, that's an absurd number. I mean, the studies that have been done over the last, I would say, 20 to 30 years have reported that between 16 and 20 percent of of women who go to college are sexually assaulted while in college. And so this is something that's happening on all campuses. But as I said, nearly all schools are very actively trying to keep their numbers low. Uh, You know, most college men are not uh, sexual assailants. This is it's a a small minority of men who, in many cases, assault again and again. So um, what I would and I've actually been kind of uh, encouraged by seeing, you know, in the audiences, Actually, more men in the audience coming to the screenings of uh, The Hunting Ground than came to the screenings of The Invisible War. So perhaps something is is changing in society around this. But I think it's important that we realize that this is not just a women's issue. This is an issue for for everyone. What about the stories about male students uh, being victims of sexual assault? How is that portrayed in the film? There's no question uh, men are assaulted, you know, mostly by other men, but actually sometimes by, by women as well. 
And uh, unfortunately, this is something that is, if, is as difficult it is for a, a woman to come forward and speak about this. It's even it's much more difficult uh, for a man to come forward and speak about this. And so um, in some ways, we don't really have a clear idea of how extensive this problem really is. But we know that it's as traumatic or even more traumatic uh, to be a, 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 you know, to be a victim of sexual assault if you're a man. In your experience as a filmmaker getting involved in this story for the better part of three years, what do you think the most progressive voices on this topic are saying? There's a number of things that, that, that really need to be done. I, I think that colleges and universities really need to professionalize their investigation and adjudication processes. Right now, it's, in so many cases, it's very ad, ad hoc. And th- these are not easy cases to uh, investigate or adjudicate, to be fair. So we advise colleges and universities putting money into these systems, hiring people that really know how to investigate these, these cases, and, uh, and then having real serious consequences if, if someone's found responsible, uh, certainly of rape. I mean, uh, ex- expulsion should be, I think, the preferred sanction unless there's some really clear mitigating circumstances. Um, I think also it's very important for uh, colleges and universities to have uh, get as much information as they can about this, of what's going on, on their campus. And the way that they can do this is they can have what, what are called climate surveys, which are anonymous surveys uh, that are done with, with their student body, you know, getting information about, you know, what percentage of people are sexually assaulted and how, how confident students feel about reporting those sexual assaults. And then the important thing here is not only getting that information, but making it public, being transparent about it. Um, I know the University of Arizona is doing a survey like this, but the key thing is around this survey is that they release this information school specific. So the public, the, you know, the, the public knows exactly what the problem is on that school. Uh, the students know what the problem is and the parents know. So, you know, I support uh, the University of Arizona for, for doing this survey, but if they don't release that information publicly, they're still um, contributing to covering up the problem on their campus. My conversation was with Kirby Dick, the director and co-producer of the documentary The Hunting Ground. He'll be presenting the film and responding to audience Q&A at two screenings this weekend at the Loft Cinema, Friday and Saturday at 7 p.m. The Saturday screening is free to college students with valid school IDs. There's more of my conversation with Kirby Dick on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. High school reunions can stir up different emotions. For many, getting the announcement of an upcoming 10th or 20th year reunion is an unavoidable acknowledgement of the passage of time. So how does it feel to get an invitation to your 70th? Vanessa Barchfield joins some seniors in Tucson to find out. The seniors of Tucson High's class of 1945 are in their late 80s now, and today they're celebrating their 70th reunion. It was just like yesterday. 
but the table covered with fading black and white photos is evidence that no, it was not just yesterday. Their yearbook pictures of girls with sweeping bangs and curly bobs, cashmere crew neck sweaters and pearls. The boys have their hair short and slicked back with razor straight parts. They're wearing ties and jackets and in the sports section, playing basketball in teeny tiny shorts and tank tops that read Tucson. The city, the whole world, was a very different place when the class of 1945 got their diplomas. We were before pantyhose, ice makers, food processors, and microwave ovens, even before Hawaii and Alaska became states. That's Cecilia Rodebush. Actually, my name is Cecilia Maria Teresa Felix de Rodebush. She's reading a speech that was made at a class reunion in the 80s. And just for a nickel, you could ride a bus, buy a cup of coffee, a Coke, or make a phone call. Kathleen Campbell-Laws, who flew in from Houston, tells me one of the things she was thinking about when she graduated was war. The boys were going off to World War II after they graduated from high school. They went into the draft, and so it was very intense, uh, you know, emotionally. <laughs> the war in Europe was coming to its bloody end right about the time they graduated. But the bombs had not yet fallen on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. A number of their classmates ended up fighting in the Pacific during the tail end of World War II. Law says she knew she might not see some of those boys again, or the ones who were drafted several years later to fight in Korea. Maybe it was that sense of danger and doom in other parts of the world that made her feel so grateful for being born where she was. I just feel that I grew up in probably the best place in the world and the best country, and the best of times. They were simple, we were naive. (laughs) As a country, we were naive. But of course, times weren't great for everyone. Jim Crow laws were in full effect. Tucson's African-American students went to a segregated elementary school and junior high, but there wasn't a separate high school. Morgan Maxwell was one of a handful of black students in the class of 1945. He says Tucson High was segregated, though, in some sense. It was segregated and it wasn't segregated because we had segregated homerooms. And at our graduation, we all, and our the, the black women's homeroom and the black men's homeroom, we all, we all marched in the rear. But Maxwell says there wasn't any racism amongst his classmates. They were all just friends. In fact, there's one story about his days on the football team that has entered into the realm of class legend. The undefeated team had just played Douglas High School and, of course, won. To celebrate, they went to a restaurant called the Gadsden. And, and the Gadsden would not serve me. They said, we do not serve Negroes. That's what we were called in, so I got up and, and walked out. And then a couple minutes later, and the entire team walked out. Our coach was Coach Gridley. He said, we all eat together. That is the classic story of Tucson High. That's Joe Margaret Wilson Morrison. She says the class of 1945 was all about togetherness, and still is. We've always been a very close class. It's one that we've stayed together. We've been all through. The weddings, the kids, and a lot of us have come back to Tucson from being gone. And you know, it's amazing. 70 years later, (laughs) we're having a marvelous time. 70 years is a huge milestone. 
and they've had numerous reunions over the decades. The last one was just two years ago. Remember that table with black and white yearbook photos? It's also filled with snapshots of the class of 1945 as adults and in their middle ages, and then looking more like they do today. You can see milliseconds of their entire lives on that table. I ask members of the organizing committee if there'll be pictures from their 70th reunion at the next gathering. They respond with a resounding no. This is the last. As I'm leaving, I can't help but wonder, what will the world look like when it's time for Tucson High's class of 2015 to celebrate its 70th reunion? What injustices will no longer exist? What will they think about the wars that raged in different parts of the world during their youth? What technologies and gadgets will fill their lives? You know, the ones that their grandchildren can't imagine a world without. Only time will tell. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Vanessa Barchfield. The MacArthur Fellowship Grant celebrates talent and creativity among academics, scholars, and artists. The more than $600,000 award was established in 1981, and each year, around two dozen recipients receive the honor, sometimes called a Genius Grant. Five MacArthur honorees are among the faculty at the University of Arizona, and throughout April, you'll be hearing conversations with them on Arizona Spotlight. Since being chosen as a MacArthur winner in 1990, Gary Paul Nabhan has made many contributions to nutrition, ecology, and the science of heirloom plants. Nabhan is a research social scientist at the University of Arizona Southwest Center, and he's traveled the world to share his knowledge and enthusiasm for the way people connect with their food. Here's Tony Paniagua with the interview. Gary Paul Dabham, thank you very much for joining us. Oh, great to be here with you, Tony. So you are a very well-known figure here in the Southwest and other parts of the world, but you're not from Arizona originally. Where were you born and what brought you to Arizona? I was born in the Indiana Dunes in a Lebanese family of immigrants. And by the time I was 17, I got the bug for visiting deserts because that's where my family was originally from, uh, the deserts of the Middle East. And so I wanted to know deserts and landed in Arizona. Did you always have this passion for food and seeds and plants? How did that come about? Well, if you know anything about the Lebanese, uh, when you knock on their door, they bring food to you. And so I grew up the grandson of a fruit peddler and was just always around wonderful fruit and and vegetables. And when I went off to college, I actually lost 20 pounds because uh, I wasn't used to regular conventional American food. So it was that interest in uh, ethnic foods and the seeds to grow them that got me on my way. You started doing that here at the University of Arizona. Where, where did you work on your career, your professional career? Well, I uh, went to Cornell College and Prescott College, and I started uh, working on the ecology of seeds in natural environments and then gradually decided that I wanted to have a career in seed saving and horticulture and sort of fu fuse the two. 
So you are the founder of Renewing America's Food Traditions and a co-founder in Native Seed Search. What would you like to tell us about these two groups? Well, Native Seed Search was co-founded with uh, several other Tucsonans, and I give them more credit than I give myself. They really knew, knew how to run an organization and make an impact so that we were trying to make seeds accessible to uh ethnic communities, low-income communities, and that's continued to happen. And Renewing America's Food Tradition was a coalition of chefs and groups like Slow Food USA and seed and livestock breed organizations that said, let's rediversify America's food systems. There's so much emphasis now on food and going to the farmer's market, growing your own, buying locally. Uh, it seems like all of a sudden this occurred, but you've been working at it for decades. Well, yeah, it's it's sort of a funny thing because when someone put in Time Magazine or someplace that I was a pioneer or the father of the local seed food movement, my wife said to me, there's something you haven't been telling me. Who's the mother of the local seed movement? <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. So in 1990, you received the MacArthur Grant. How did this help you achieve your goals, and what did this mean to you personally? Well, personally, it gave me a little bit more confidence to continue on two dual paths. The writing that I've done as a creative writing teacher and and almost daily writer. I, I'm no longer doing uh, nonfiction books. I can't write prose anymore, so I'm just doing poems. But at the same time, I have an orchard and I save seeds and I go out collecting seeds from wild habitats to help conservation projects. So the MacArthur Award allowed me to not be embarrassed that I was working both in the arts and sciences at the same time. And now you're working on other projects, including uh, an event that's coming up on May 3rd to the 6th. It's called International Seed Library Forum. What is that all about? Well, it's an, a gathering of about 180 people from Canada, U.S., and Mexico that are starting free access seed libraries in those old wooden card catalog files, putting seed envelopes in those in public libraries around the world. And there's over 440 seed libraries now in the U.S. and Canada and about another 140 uh, worldwide. And we've never gotten together. We're commemorating this third of a century anniversary of the first gathering in the United States called Seed Bank Serving People of the Heirloom Seed Movement. So some of the people who came to Tucson 33 years ago are coming back. And this is May 3rd to May 6th, and where is it going to be held? Most of it will be at the uh, Joel Valdez uh, Main Library downtown. Uh, we have a reading there Tuesday night of uh, my poems and poems by a farmer from uh, Long Island, Scott Chasky, who's done a wonderful book called Seed Time. So we'll be celebrating uh, the Pima County Board of Supervisors declaration that the first week in May is uh, uh, Seed Library Week. Okay, and what would you like to say about the connection between biodiversity and cultural diversity? Well, when I worked at the first Earth Day, it was all focused on how we stop pollution and population growth, and it was negative messages. And I think we've turned it around where there's a positive message that biodiversity can help nourish and heal people if we take care of it, and that cultural diversity and the traditional knowledge about biodiversity is as important, if not more important, than the seeds and the breeds themselves. So Earth Day was celebrated this Wednesday around the world, and you were telling me ahead of this interview this was the first year you haven't been 
in Tucson doing something else. That's right. I worked as a volunteer for the first Earth Day, uh, living in Washington, D.C., sleeping on some mailbags in 1970, and this is the 45th anniversary of that. And I, I just have the wonderful chance to celebrate it with friends and family. All right. Before we go, we're going to have you read a poem, but I have a question. What, when it comes to Gary Paul Napan and his family, what is your favorite food? Is there such a thing? What do you like to prepare eat at home? Well, I love grape leaves, and I collect the Arizona wild grapes and stuff them with all kinds of spices and nuts and things that we grow ourselves. I also uh, love uh, tepary bean hummus, uh, something that uh, I grew up with, uh, hummus made from chickpeas, but now friends have taught me how to make it with other beans, tepary beans and black-eyed peas. So I'm, I'm kind of a beans and greens guy. And you have food at home all the time. It seems like part of your tradition and also part of what you do, right? That's right. So I have a big garden and orchard in Patagonia, which I invite people to see, and I love to cook from it as I did last night. Okay, Gary, you mentioned the uh, International Seed Library Forum, and poems are going to be available. Let's hear one of your poems, please. Well, this one is called Masters and Apprentices. We don't just study seeds, we study under the spell of seeds, for we can only conclude we are the understudies and they are the masters. So that's just uh, trying to reverse the relationship so that we understand how much we can learn from seeds and plants. And this is another poem for Justine Hernandez, who you probably know at Tucson Public Library, who got the Shaker and Mover Award from Library Journal for her work with seed libraries. Seeds as libraries. Could it be that seeds and their oral histories were the first tracks in our ancestral library? Long before books were actually invented, well before data were archived on computer chips? Our elders sensed that seeds and stories encrypted precious information. They distilled it into timeless wisdom, integral to our survival. May we claim that seed sharing and storytelling were our first interlibrary loans? What would you like to see occur with food and seeds and the global condition in which our planet is uh, experiencing right now? I would love to see that the interest in seed diversity, biodiversity, goes to help the poorest of the poor to alleviate the poverty here that we have in Arizona and the borderlands, twice the poverty level of the rest of the country, and that these nutritious plants can help stop the hunger, uh, obesity, and diabetes that's ravaged our region, and that's my hope and prayer. Okay, Dr. Gary Paul Nabhan from the University of Arizona, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. You can find a link for details about the weekend event that Gary Paul Nabhan mentioned on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Next week, we'll feature a conversation with MacArthur Fellow and University of Arizona optics researcher Olivier Guion about building telescopes designed to search for habitable planets beyond our solar system. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can find the show as a podcast on iTunes. The show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. The music is by Calexico. Production assistance by Caitlin Dean. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Thank you.